Hi, and welcome back to the Legal Diaries podcast. I'm your host, Danny. I'm a recently qualified barrister who works in human rights and public interest law, and I also do some consultancy on the side, as well as running the website www.legaldiaries.ie and the Instagram page at legaldiaries.ie. On the podcast, we dive deep into all things health, fitness, mindset, studying, habits, dating, and career, and probably so much more. I will aim to bring you the tools and actionable steps to smash your goals, inspire you to take bold action, and above all else, put yourself first. Hello and happy Saturday. I hope you're all keeping safe and well at this time. This podcast episode is of particular importance because it is being released on 10th of October. For those of you who are not familiar, the 10th of October marks World Mental Health Day. The overall objective of the day is to raise awareness of mental health issues around the world and to mobilise efforts in support of mental health. This day holds a special place for me as personally I've had a long and challenging journey with my own mental health. I've suffered from anxiety and depression since my teen years. I'm so delighted to be joined by Elle from Elle the Law Student to speak about our mental health journeys. Elle recently opened up about her struggles in an empowering YouTube video. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes below. The aim of this podcast is for Elle and I to speak about and share our journeys in the hopes that it makes others' journeys that little bit easier to navigate. On paper, Elle and I, if we stood before you or you checked out our social media channels, you might not guess it. You might not know that all of these underlying issues lay beneath. You see, mental health is often invisible to the outside world. So don't be afraid to reach out to someone if you are struggling or check in on that person you may think is having a hard time. The current health pandemic has struck a chord with us all, with many people struggling with their mental health, feelings of isolation and uncertainty. 2020 has proved to be a tough year for us all, so that is why having these conversations is even more pertinent at this time. I'm very aware that this podcast touches on some very sensitive and triggering topics for many, so I've included a link to a page on my website in the show notes where I've listed a multitude of resources, in particular for those whom are based in Ireland and the UK. Thank you for listening. Hello everyone and welcome back to another Legal Diaries podcast. Today I am going to be joined by the wonderful Elle. So I will hand over so she can introduce herself. Um, Yeah, so I'm Elle. I'm a third year law student at the University of Oxford um, and I'm originally from Sheffield in the UK. Um, I set up Elle the Law Student, which is a YouTube channel and Instagram page and all that sort of thing um, about a year ago now to sort of help to promote access um, and help to help young people to understand exactly what it was like to study law at university and to also encourage students to apply to highly selective universities. 
very fast so um obviously so you recently on your youtube channel shared this very kind of open video about your academic struggles and your struggles with your mental health just before we kind of dive into that topic what kind of brought you to film that video because obviously it was so open it's a and i'd i'd um implore everyone to watch it because it's a good kind of 40 minutes where you go through everything and you're very open and honest but what sparked that kind of I need to record this and talk about this? I think there are a couple of things. So I think, um, I think first of all, I, I get so many messages all the time. Like, how do you deal with the Oxford workload? Like, how did you get to where you are? Like that's, you know, you must've just got perfect grades at A-levels. Like everything must've just been really easy and I could never be like you and all this kind of thing. Um, and that's just not true. Like, obviously, you know you put your successes online like you put your you put your best days your best angles your best grades you know you put that online because um why wouldn't you you know um but i thought actually i can't keep making videos about oxford and being a student and saying everything here is absolutely wonderful and i've enjoyed every second of my time here because i don't want anybody to ever watch those videos and think oh, I'm not enjoying every second of my time here and I've just got an essay that's got a low mark and, um, you know, no one else feels like that because I think at the sort of when I've been struggling, I've always felt that the problem was with me and, and no one else was feeling like that. So I thought, yeah, I, I just want to make people aware that it's okay to feel as you are feeling um, whenever things, you know, whenever things get you down. Um, and also my, my boyfriend, Cade, um, was really, really supportive uh, when I came to university and sort of was having quite a few problems with my mental health. And he was really encouraging. He sort of said that he thought it would be sort of sharing it would really help other people to realise that it's absolutely fine to hit speed bumps um, and it's totally normal for things not to be completely fine and it's okay to not come to university and have the time of your life. Because um, I've had some great times at university but I've also had some really not great times and that's okay but at the time I didn't realise that was okay. Yeah, no definitely and I think it's a really kind of not very spoken about, especially when you're, you're seeing as such a high achiever because obviously you go to a well-renowned world a world-renowned university and you obviously achieved great grades to get in there and you worked very hard so I think it's it, it sounds really bad of me but it, it often feels like the more successful you are and the more good you do in life the more presumed you are to kind of be okay because I get similar messages as well where I'm like they're like, oh, how did you juggle doing this and this and how, and like, oh, like you just make it, how do you do this? And you just make it seem so effortless and stuff. And I was just like, but you compromise your mental health and you compromise your sanity and your well-being, And like, it's not, it's, it's not okay. And I think it's a conversation um, we need to kind of have more about because especially I, so when I was, when I was in 2015-2016 so I served as university as a on the university student union so I was a, I was elected as education officer and I absolutely adored the job but 
dependent on what kind of committee you sat on at the university, a lot of universities are like, well, you came here for an education. You didn't come here for well-being and mental health supports. So, I, and I think we kind of need to break that perception down because it it is your home and you live at the university. Like you've literally just moved back into university at the time of COVID and it is the community around you. So I think there needs to be more kind of community supports there. Um, but yeah, no, if we, if we kind of take it back then, um, so if you don't mind kind of sharing a little bit about your mental health journey, so kind of where it began and maybe where you are kind of at, at now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I sort of first started having really quite bad anxiety and panic attacks when I was about 12 or 13. So I was pretty young. Um, and I, I think once I had to leave a classroom because of one of these panic attacks and like a teacher found me. And so, you know, they were fantastic and they were like, okay, well, we'll get you some help and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I went to a school, uh, like my school's, I can't even remember the kind of title that they give them, but kind of like a counsellor person who, who worked at the school. Um, and after a while, um, like a few weeks, they've kind of going to see this lady each week. She was, who was lovely and super helpful. Um, she said, I, you know, I, I think this is probably a bit beyond our reach. Um, and so she suggested going to the doctors. And so I went to the doctors who, gave me some medication but said that there was no like counseling options because um the child adolescent mental health services over here um are so kind of crowded um and he said that they wouldn't touch me with a barge pole those are his exact words um and he just he 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 said to me um, that i needed to calm down because otherwise i'd be a 40 year old crazy woman running around on antidepressants which was a fantastic thing to hear age like 12 13 um you've been told by one service that you're too much for them exactly and then exactly. you'll you're being told by another service that you're just not crazy enough but if exactly. you continue the way you will you, you'll you'll be able to access our service because you'll be a 40 year old <laughs> yeah. crazy woman Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I definitely kind of felt a bit stuck. Um, at that point, I didn't really know what to do. I still kept speaking to people in school. But one of, one of my kind of biggest things was I was always such a perfectionist. Um, and my teachers loved that. You know, my teachers, obviously, it meant that all of my homework was submitted like super early. I put in loads of effort. I put every hour of the day into my schoolwork um, and it, you know, it paid off. I ended up getting good grades and that realistically, that's why I'm here. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people who can not revise for an exam and get amazing marks. Um, so, it, you know, and, and so I was kind of just being consistently encouraged um, and that wasn't the teachers fault at all like a lot of them were just unaware of the things that were going on um, or didn't quite understand it um, and there were some teachers who were fantastic and did tell me to sort of stop working but that's definitely sort of the minority view um, and I think at school as well there's always this perpetual sort of message that's coming across like you need to work hard um, because otherwise you'll fail your exams um, which, you know, I think some students need to hear for motivation, but it really kind of had quite a detrimental impact on me. Yeah. 
and then by the time I got to my A-level exams, um, I think looking back on it now, I think I was just completely burnt out. I did so much work leading up to them that that exam period was just hellish. Um, you know, I wasn't sleeping at night and I came out of every exam thinking I'd failed and it was, yeah, it wasn't pleasant at all. And then I kind of, I um, ended up on results day not getting the grades that I needed for Oxford. Um, but I actually had got the grades I needed for Oxford. It was just that one of my papers had been marked really funnily. And so after a remark, it kind of gave me the required grades. But even so at the time, I thought that I hadn't got in, um, but the university still accepted me anyway, which was amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think from that kind of point onwards, I almost felt as though I had to prove myself even more because they'd kind of made an exception for me and they'd let me come to university despite not having those grades. Um, and so I think from that point onwards, I again, put so much pressure on myself. Um, and then, kind of putting a long story short, I got to about halfway through my first term here and I was just not really, not really eating, not really sleeping. I was just working. I wasn't doing anything else apart from doing my work. And, you know, at one point I was kind of like two weeks ahead of where I needed to be in terms of work and essays. And like now, if I'm two days ahead of where I need to be, like that's, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Um, so I've, I, can't even comprehend how many hours I was putting in um but yeah and it, it got to the point where I just thought that I was gonna have to leave um so I'd spoken to the welfare officer and the idea was that I was not going to come back after Christmas I was going to take a year out um you know if things didn't get better kind of after that year out I maybe transfer to another university or something um and then over Christmas um I did go to some counselling that was really really helpful and they sort of were the first person to mention the term OCD and as soon as like that was mentioned it, everything just kind of made sense like I'd never been able to describe to people why I wanted to work so much like I, I'd never been able to to fully convey how that felt but when somebody said to me, you know, is it kind of like an obsession? And I was like, yeah, it absolutely is. Like it's, it's compulsive and I have to do it. Otherwise, terrible things will happen. Um, and so from then on, I think because I kind of knew what it was and we were then therefore able to find different exercises to get around it. And I went back to the doctor, but a different doctor and, and they were absolutely fantastic. They really listened to me and they sort of told me how many options I had. Um, and so I did end up coming back after Christmas. So I was like, well, I'll just come back for a couple of weeks and see, see what that's like. And then sort of a couple of weeks turned into a few more weeks and then a term and then the rest of the year. Um, and then, yeah, things just kind of really did get better and better um, until the point where now I, I do, you know, I'm still definitely a struggle to pull myself away from work at the end of the day. Um, but I am getting there like I will now organize to go out for a meal with my friends or go into the kitchen and have a chat um, and so yeah things have definitely definitely got a lot better um yeah I know that that's that's really thanks for sharing because that that's a really kind of comprehensive overview and if we just go 
back and break it down. So we were just chatting before we started recording about kind of how we feel. So I know that I've struggled with my mental health for, for a number of years. Um, and like a lot of my close family and friends would know, but we just, I feel like we fall into this awkward middle where we are too much for one service, but not enough for another service. So yeah, and like what, when you kind of went back and changed, and I think, I think one thing that really spoke to me from your story is when you went to a different doctor, they had a completely different tune about what's like going on and how you, they can best support you. Um, and that, that is so kind of, like, I don't know how they learn about it and kind of when they go to be a doctor and they study at university because I've had so many diverse um, experiences with doctors. Some are very kind of like yours was being like, well, I don't have a service for you. Here's some medication. Hopefully that will ease whatever's going on with you. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the supportive doctor that said you have these multitude of supports. Um, and I've had both of those parallel experiences quite recently because I was transitioning when I moved kind of home more to my parents' house, I moved back doctors um, and the doctor at home, like usually I feel, especially in Ireland, so because we we won't even get in um, to the difference between the NHS and the HSE because our, our health system is just, <laughs> our, the Irish health system is just, just appalling. But you, if you don't have a medical card in Ireland or a doctor visit card, you pay, like, so say I, I wouldn't have either. So I just pay for every single doctor's visit that I have to go to. So that's about 65 euro. I recently had a phone consultation during COVID with my doctor, my previous doctor, um, and paid then got a call from the accounts department like the next day it was literally a, it was just a renewal of prescription it was a five minute conversation not even five minutes like three minute conversation and I got a call the next day from the accounts department asking me to pay for my phone consultation so I was like oh, okay that's perfect assuming they were doing like a reduced kind of thing because they were just doing phone they weren't doing in-person consultations it still cost me 65 euro for a three minute okay. phone conversation and that's not even getting into then I obviously get the prescription, have to pay for the, the prescription and all that. But yeah, I had. And then so that was a three minute conversation. And that was a very kind of pro medication doctor. And then the doctor that I moved to recently, I've never had such a nice like I spent, I'd say, a good solid 50 minutes in with her just talking about everything and kind of chatting her being like, well we'll look at the other side of it in terms of like without medication and how we can get to that point whereas this doctor is like oh sure if you need it you need it sure look um and yeah it's it's kind of it's so interesting to hear that you've had in a different country you've had the exact same experiences with services um yeah and how so like how did you so if we kind of break it apart so how did you feel being that kind of awkward middle like, how did that kind of affect you as a person? So I think at the time, I I was so young, I didn't really think about the bigger picture or anything. Like, at the time, things, you know, it's never nice to have things like anxiety and panic attacks, but it really wasn't that 
bad you know realistically I've, when you're 12 13 you have schoolwork, but kind of you're not really given those high pressure circumstances and um, because I've worked hard anyway it was you know it, it wasn't particularly difficult for me to do okay at school you know um because you know at that age if you do your homework and you pay attention in lessons like you're generally okay um so I think at the time I didn't really realize the impact that being in that middle ground would have on me um and it's only really kind of as I got older that things just became a bit more frustrating I think for example like when I got to my A-levels and then when I came to university and and really hit kind of the the lowest that I'd been I think in those moments and kind of coming out of those moments what was more frustrating was that I kind of thought well if I'd been given help at sort of 12 13 years old could that have just changed my entire outlook and could that have meant that you know potentially those things still would have happened but I might have been in a better position I might have mm. known who I can go to for help rather than thinking I'm too normal for kind of specialized help but I'm sort of too complicated <laughs> for um the services available at school and that sort of thing um and so yeah. I think kind of since then it's just it's, it's just made me so frustrated mostly because like now um things have been a lot better and I think that in my experience the mental health services available for adults um as it, in um the UK anyway have they're just there's just more available um but I just think you know the fact that we can't have adequate mental health support for children and and young people is just insane because if if we were able to target these problems earlier and we were able to give people the support that they needed it would just it would mean that they were just <laughs> so much more prepared to go out into the world and it would it would mean that we could probably like nip smaller issues in the bud um, and stop yeah. them from developing into something that you can get help for because it's serious enough you know yeah because I think I think the kind of systems are quite similar in the sense that I find them quite um rather than being um preventative they're more reactive so they kind of react to when it gets to your point and when you hit your lowest low when you were in your first year of university then they're like uh, oh shit like we we need to do something here and support this girl because she clearly has something undiagnosed but there, there's something going on here um and I think I just think there's so much we can do with education these days to armor kids with what they need um and I know even like from my own perspective in Ireland um when I was at university yeah there were huge waiting lists for the the kind of services within the university but they were readily accessible but you you have to wait on a on a severe now when I say severe wait waiting list it was really long and the service itself was very underfunded um but from an adult perspective the other side of it um there's I would say being in the middle and um, not even being in the middle but being 
and it, I don't even want to say an income earner because income earners can also access services. I just think there's because you guys obviously have the national health system and everything set up that way, so it's probably more readily accessible for you to kind of gain access to 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 state services. Whereas in Ireland, it's for me being a person who's like employed and all that, I would probably go private, like it's or through health insurance, like it's not a thing and that that really bothers me about the Irish system because if you had more free community-based supports that were like preventative rather than being like reacting so someone getting to a point where they something has developed into more than it should have been so maybe if you had have had an intervention at the age of 12 13 and you were able to recognize those kind of perfectionist traits as something that was OCD you might have been able to more effectively manage them in your first year of university. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, it's just about surely it's so much better to, to provide that preventative, even from, you know, if you want to cut it back to in terms of from a cost point of view for the state, like it would make so much more sense to try and give young people the tools to look after their own mental health and to educate them and I, it, yeah I just I think something really needs to be something really needs to be done because it's yeah I just feel as though so many young people are being let down now and especially I mean the amount of rubbish that young people have to go through um you know especially we've seen it during Covid with the exam results in the UK and they've made GCSEs harder and and all of these things and you can't put young people through these crazy amounts of like through this crazy amount of pressure and and not provide that support um because it, it's just sort of, you're either going to get people who are completely disinterested in their education or people who are interested in education just being pushed to the edge because they can't cope. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there's like, there's some kind of pieces to reflect on there because it just like when you look at the kind of, I know, particularly in Ireland in the past kind of say five, six years, we've had a huge increase in young adolescent if not younger suicides and I think they are wholly preventative um, for a person of such a young age to have such feelings is just like when you're obviously there's we need to take everything case by case basis some kids grow up in in very bad environments and have their own kind of stuff going on but for someone so young to have those kind of feelings and have to process them to get to that point, I think it, it means a system has failed that kind of that young person because like it's and do you think so obviously you're you're very close to say so it would be leaving certain Ireland so you're obviously much closer to your leaving or your A level years than I would be to my <laughs> leaving certain years. Um have you seen um just from your own experience or maybe um relatives who are younger has anything kind of changed in the schooling system or do you think they're more they're better than they were say when you were 12 or 13 no so i think um i think in my experience like looking at say my my brother is five years younger than me so um and i feel as though my experience was very different to his 
you know, I found doing my GCSE, so my exams when I was 16, I found them very, very stressful. Um, but that was kind of more to do with me, I think, than um, the exams themselves. It obviously, you know, if I'd have had a bit more support, then maybe I wouldn't have found them as bad. But all in all, it was kind of my response wasn't necessarily a normal response to those exams. Um, it, you know, a lot of people could get through them feeling a slight bit of pressure, which I think is always important for an exam. You know, you want to have that pressure to, to kind of push you a bit more. Um, but I don't think there was the immense amount of pressure that I know, for example, my brother is under. Um, I just think because they they changed the system over here from doing sort of the ABC grades to uh, nine, eight, seven grades, I think. Um, and uh, I know that the content has just become a lot harder um and they they've just made lots of lots of changes and kids are under so much pressure um that it just seems that they were going backwards <laughs> rather than rather than forwards and i you know i just i think it's i think it's a shame because even if say if i speak to my parents um and funnily enough my parents went to the same school that i then went to um and, you know, they said that when they did their GCSEs and A-levels, there was just hardly any pressure on them. It was kind of, you know, do your best, get C's and B's, like, that's great. Whereas when I was doing my A-levels, it was like, you know, you want to really aim for those top grades because that's what you need to get into university and all this kind of thing. And, yeah, I, I <laughs> the, the fact that there's so much pressure on kids is insane. And I just think as well, like, I, so... I've been really lucky because Oxford has a really, really fantastic welfare system um, and I've had access to a lot of free services here um, as, as well, which has been brilliant. Um, but I just think, yeah, I, I just think that the fact that it kind of took me up to the age of, I was nearly 19 when I came to university, so it took me up until the age of 19 for somebody to kind of sort of say oh you're putting too much pressure on yourself <laughs> let's take a step back and let's try and work this out um that's that's quite scary especially since i think things are getting tougher um and i yeah i, I it's like you said i mean how can a child get to the point where they think that they have so few options that suicide is their only option, you know? Like, I, I think something that's become increasingly clear to me, the older I've got, is the fact that nothing that you do really determines your future. Like, you know, I thought when I was in year eight at school, when I was like 12, <laughs> that if I did badly on a random maths test, it would mean I couldn't go to university. But, you know, and then kind of as I got older, I just realised that there's no black and white there's just shades of gray and it's something i have to tell myself every day like nothing that i do right now really really significantly impacts my future to a com you know to a point that it's completely undoable um yeah uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's the same kind of um because i know in ireland and i can imagine it's the same around um kind of a level time because so say you kind of had a system of predictive grading in place um whereas ireland for um say a level so for the leaving cert it is for anyone for yourself and anyone who's not irish who's listening um there's no real form of continuous assessment it's all based on one exam one day or two exams two different papers for one subject 
there's no predictive grading. So you don't have an indication. You kind of, you have an indication in the sense that you sit mock exams, but so the teachers, but you'll get a mix of students. So you'll get students who will sit their mock exams and treat them like the real thing. And then you will get students who will not do a tap for the mock exams and the mock exams, when they get the results back will be the kick up the ass they need to be like, oh crap, I need to pull my socks up. So you had, we've no kind of system of predicted grading. So when, when we had to use predicted grading for COVID because they couldn't hold, they kept postponing and postponing and leaving our leaving so students in such kind of like limbo basically about what was happening with their exams. So that, that was bad enough already. Um, and so then they got predicted grades and then obviously they said they were the highest kind of leaving cert grades on record since a certain year. With that in Ireland, how it works for us is we have a central application system, which if say there's a hundred places in, um, so say if Oxford was in Ireland, there's a hundred places for law in Oxford in Ireland. There is um, over 6,000 students apply for that, those 100 spaces. The demand drives the amount of points and the grades you need to get up to get into that course. So the course never necessarily the grade, like the points that you need to get don't necessarily reflect your ability to do the course or how hard the course is. It's more so that six thousand students have applied for one 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 hundred places. So the top kind of students who get six hundred points if they set the benchmark and then it's if 100 students have 600 points they all get in um if only 90 students reach that benchmark they then go down and let people in at maybe 590 and it goes down and down and down so students often in ireland what i found when i did the leaving search is you push yourself to get the because you don't know what points you kind of go on what points last year's courses were similar probably to the uk so you kind of have an indication of what kind of grades you need to get in your A-levels in order to secure your place. Um, but there's no kind of conditional offer. So you don't do kind of an interview phase. You don't have, okay, I have a conditional offer for an Oxford. All I need to get is three A-stars to get into my course. Um, so you don't have any, it's all riding on this, this, these kind of three weeks that you have during the summer period. And what I found when I was a Leaving Cert student you can often feel because you have obviously an exam number and you apply to your CAO with your exam number and like so you and you have to get a certain number of points to get into a certain course you just kind of feel like a number in the Irish education system and I think that's really disheartening for students because you're not kind of some teachers will be really optimistic and will tell you that the leaving search similar enough to A-levels are not everything if you do poorly in your A-level or leaving cert or your back, back look, I can never say that, the back for the French exams or your SATs or whatever system you're familiar with, it does not in any way define what you're going to go on and do in later life. Um, and I think that needs to be taught firstly to kids. Obviously, you want to push people to excel and to achieve and do the best that they can, but you need to do it in a more nurturing way than a more, I'm going to put tons of bricks of pressure on you so you can achieve what I think you can. Um, and I think, I just think 
that so say for for and it really bothers me as well um for so say for a levels you did what how many subjects did you do um i did three yeah okay so say for leaving cert most students will do seven subjects mm -hmm. um and you have to do seven subjects usually you have to do english irish maths unless you're exempt from irish because you're um dyslexic or you're um, a foreign student so you didn't do Irish ever and you just came over to schooling in Ireland so you can be exempt from Irish. You have to do say English and maths and Irish if you're an Irish student without an exemption and then you pick four subjects on top of that. So you have seven subjects so seven course loads that you need to do in three exams in three weeks and that defines your future according to the Irish education system. So I just think, and the fact that they made the GCSEs harder and like introduced all these changes in grading and there's so much pressure on you guys at A-level to get these kind of 3A stars or whatever grades you need. Um, I think that it's as if they don't bring a kind of like health or mental health consultant in to the conversation when they design all of these big education plans. And it just, sorry, I'm up for anyone listening. I'm absolutely ranting out, but it, it, it really stems for me from the education system and from the pressure that is put on kids to be, because you even said yourself in your video, on paper, you were perfect. Yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, and this is what I mean, you know, teachers, where I went to parents' evening after parents' evening after parents' evening, and you know, I'd get glowing reports, I'd done really well in all of these different things. Um, and it would always, I know for my parents, especially, not even so much for me, but for my parents, they found it so frustrating because they knew how much pressure I was putting on myself. They knew that I needed to slow down and stop and not think that not getting an A or an A star, like not think that that was a disastrous failure. Um, and I, yeah, it's just, it was just so the, the, the amount of pressure and the amount that's, that's put on you and you, you know, you can understand it. Like I don't, I don't think the schools are at fault at all. You know, I had fantastic teachers, um, who were really caring and really did have students best interests at heart, but also they've got so much pressure on themselves as teachers to make sure that their classes grades are, are high and then the yeah, school, and the school yeah. To make sure that their average grades are high because it's all attached to funding and all these kind of things and it, it just i just think it creates a really really difficult and unhealthy environment in a lot of circumstances which isn't what school's supposed to be you know school's supposed to be sort of encouraging kids to enjoy learning and i think it's such a shame when it doesn't yeah and like i find I don't know what you find about the the kind of English schooling system, um, but the Irish schooling system, I know they are trying to change it um, in the past kind of couple of years. It's a lot of rote learning. So it's a lot of you learn this for the purpose of an exam rather than being like it doesn't kind of allow for students that would maybe not be that great at, at exams, but might perform with different forms of assessment. And I think putting all your eggs kind of into one basket can really like and I like I've worked in a school as well and I've seen the girls um that were sitting exams and the boys and stuff like they go through they put themselves through hell because they're competing with each other even though they don't realize but they can often be quite competitive with each other 
um, and then you're pushed by your teachers because the teachers are pushed by the school and the school is pushed by the state to perform at a certain level. So it's just really kind of a broken system. Um, I don't know how they're going to fix it, but... And how, so you obviously said that initially you, you on paper, your initial results before you appealed, you didn't get the grades. And you said something interesting was that you were in a privileged position to be able to appeal your results. So to review your paper, what, what was that kind of experience like? Yeah, so I don't know how it works kind of around the world, but basically um, in the... I think it, like because I know there are different exam boards around the UK but for this particular exam board you basically have to pay a certain amount to have your uh, because typically what you do is you get your paper sent back to you so that you can look through it and so a teacher can say whether it's worth paying for it to be remarked so you have to pay for that initial step um, and then you have to pay to get it remarked as well um, and um, it's, I think it, I can't really remember, but I think it's about 50 pounds or something to get your paper back. And then I think it costs, I can't remember. I think it's probably around a hundred pounds to get it remarked, which I was in. So I was in a really fortunate position because I like, I was able to pay for the first bit. And then my school were kind enough to pay for the remark because they'd had like in that subject and um, they'd had so many kind of dodgy grades basically um, and so they were able to do that but again like some schools aren't able to do that and um, some schools you know because they don't have the funding they're overcrowded and it's you know um, my school was able to do that for a small number of students um, and I was luckily one of them but <clears throat> yeah so I, I I do feel like I was in a very very fortunate position because there are so many people who you know might not even know that that's something you can do have your paper remarked um and there I'm sure are plenty of people who the the cost either you know they can't afford it or it's not worth it you know it's not worth struggling to eat for a week to get a paper remarked um and I think, again, that's such a problem because, for example, private schools, um, from what I know and kind of some reports I've read, basically, if students don't achieve their predicted grades, then the private schools will just put those papers in for a remark kind of automatically and the school will pay for it and it's all sorted. Um, but I mean, my, my paper went up by 40 marks. My paper went from like, because I, I think I did two papers plus coursework. And I got like an A star in my coursework in my um, sort of second paper. And then in my first paper, I'd got a C. And that C, it was like a low C. That low C went up to a high A and it increased by 40 marks. And, you know, the, the fact that, I, and I know so many people who had the same experience and didn't get into university because of it. And it's the fact that money can stop you, like can get in the way, that shouldn't happen in the 21st century. Like that's insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's insane because you essentially said that a whole section of your paper just hadn't been marked or something. Yeah, I have no idea what happened. And um, they don't know whether it was an administrative error or what. 
Um, or, or we don't know whether it was part of the paper that wasn't marked. My teachers couldn't figure it out. Because um, 40 marks is to go from like a low C to a higher A is, is a huge jump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Um, and then obviously the, the plus was because you, you were able to get a remarked and your school were so kind to kind of go through the process with you um, and fund the kind of latter half of it. You then got your place in Oxford, um, which you were in complete denial about and had rang the admissions office to be like, are you sure? Um, yeah. yeah. What? And you spoke quite a lot in your video about you felt like kind of a charity case or you had huge imposter syndrome being in Oxford. Where did that kind of stem from or what, what brought that on for you or what was your feelings around that? So I, so I think for me, it was everything just felt very isolating and I just, I felt as though I'd been really lucky. Um, so they, Oxford actually accepted me before the remark. So they didn't know that I'd met the grades, um, but they, they still accepted me, which was kind of when I was completely in shock and phoned them up and asked like, you know, are you sure? Is there a problem with, with the system or anything? Um, and so I think kind of, even though following that, I actually found out that I had, that I did achieve those grades. I don't think it kind of got in the way of me thinking, well, I've got to work so hard because they've kind of put their faith in me and they've let me come. And then I thought, well, you know, is it because of where I'm from? Like, do they want to get their numbers up? You know, like, do they want to make sure that they've got plenty of state school students? And I just kind of thought, oh God, I can't, I can't be pigeonholed as that person who's just here, who's just here because of their background, like, you know, some kind of weird positive discrimination type thing, you know? Um, and so I just think I was like, I've got to work so hard. Like I've got to show that I can be here. And I just thought everybody around me was so smart and I wasn't, I was just like, this is really hard. Um, and, you know, looking back now and actually speaking to the people around me, everyone was finding it really hard. You know, it's just some people are better at hiding it than others. And some people find that just going out and going to nightclubs like helps them get through that. And, you know, it, it, I think it's just all about how people cope and you don't necessarily know how somebody's feeling. Um, I have to stop myself now. Like I have to, have to, whenever I see kind of other students looking like they're having an amazing time and looking like they're getting perfect grades and stuff, I have to say to myself, you can't compare yourself because you don't know what that person is actually going through. Um, and um, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, it's the constant thing that I've got to tell myself. <laughs> Yeah. And do you think being in law kind of perpetuates that for you? Because I found when I was, because I did an on-law undergrad, I found it, it was competitive, but it was a lot less competitive as being in law. I found law very, like very, very competitive. Um, do you think kind of those feelings were kind of heightened because of the course you were in? Or do you think it was just an overall sense yourself? Yeah, so I think, I think law is so weird. So I do a lot of like access and admissions work. And it turns out that I don't actually know what kind of the statistics are internationally. But I know in Oxford, like Oc at law is 
a course that has a really high percentage of state school students. So law and medicine, because they kind of can lead to a job that tends to be more appealing to state school students who, um, you know, probably don't necessarily see the point in doing something like classics or English that doesn't have like a definitive goal at the end of it. Um, but it's weird because I, I don't think, well, I never really knew that. And even when I did know that, like when I did find that out, it was really strange because I just think the language of the law, especially can be so isolating. I mean, in Oxford, it's compulsory to study Roman law. And like when I was studying Roman law, there were huge, so the textbooks basically were written, a lot of them were written in sort of the first half of the 20th century, at which point like the people who were studying law, especially in Oxford, all, you know, knew Latin and all this kind of thing. But there were literally some of these textbooks where there would be pages of untranslated Latin. And I didn't even know until I came to university that some people still studied Latin at school, like that idea was completely beyond me. Um, and so I think just experiences like that were really isolating. I think the fact as well that Oxford has such a, so there are, there's loads of just like random words that are not used anywhere else in the country and traditions and stuff. And I felt like everybody else knew what was going on around them and I had no clue. <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't understand what all of these strange words meant. I didn't really understand what all the traditions were and I just felt like a fish out of water. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And so I think that really, really perpetuates it because it made me feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here because I don't get it, you know? Yeah, you hadn't had as if they had been brought up with the expectation that they were going to go to Oxford. So they, and it was kind of just every day kind of speak in the private school that they're in, but you didn't have that in your state school. Nothing, like, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's getting that kind of translation over that not everyone grows up learning latin and not everyone grows up like knowing all of these random terms and like what are for for kind of law for potential oxford law students what are some of the kind of or potential oxford students what are some of the kind of i don't want to say abnormalities but things that are unique to oxford that kind of threw you off when you when you got in so i think one of the things is so we have these we have eight week terms and um, so we it, i i academic year is super short, we have three eight-week terms um, and when you're kind of giving your term dates you're told you're here for these eight weeks but then they don't tell you that there's something called ninth week that you also have to be here for and your exams will be in like ninth week and things like that really threw me off because I you know was planning about when I was going to move in and my dad was looking at when he needed to book in time off work to move me back in um, and I didn't know that this random North week was a thing. Um, and then things like um, subfusk. So it's basically when we do our exams, we wear a gown and like a... I've seen this on all like the study <laughs> tubers and stuff. And I'm like, how are you not sweltering? <laughs> like I never experienced kind of that. Um, I don't want to say like the, the sense of kind of archaicness until yeah. I got to kind of inns when I have to wear robes to dining and stuff and I kind of got that because I was like oh it's tradition and you dress in court attire when you're doing court things and um yeah I I found that bizarre when I saw it to sit your exam so that's obviously an added expense so for someone who comes from 
maybe not a privileged background or not even a middle class background to have to put all those expenses on top of already getting into Oxford and maybe moving into a very expensive uh, town to then go that's insane and I think as well the thing is so I think this was part of my problem so I kind of thought how am I going to afford accommodation how am I going to afford all of this stuff because what I also didn't fully understand was the amount of financial support that was available. You know, I, I was so stressed about going to university. And, you know, I remember like my grandma said to me, why aren't you, why aren't you going to University of Sheffield? Like, if you're going to go and get a degree, like, why would you move away? Because you, you're just spending so much money and you'll be in so much debt and, and things. Um, and so it, I, you know, I think that I didn't understand kind of like student finance. I didn't understand that beyond student finance, there was all of this university help that I could get. Um, I just had to ask for it, you know. Um, and it, yeah, there were just, I think there were just so many things that I didn't understand. Um, and I didn't know that I could ask for help and I could ask for support. Um, whether that's like financially or from a mental health perspective. And so kind of, I, you know, the, the answers are all out there, but actually finding them can just be quite difficult. Yeah. And I find it, it what I find so kind of interesting about your story is that like you said that the welfare system for students in Oxford is very good, but like my in the back of my mind and obviously it doesn't matter because it didn't happen but what would have happened if you didn't get into Oxford would you have been able to access the same level of supports and like what what for a student who's kind of maybe in your shoes now in A levels and kind of feeling the feelings you are and has applied to say Oxford what or even another kind of university what kind of supports do you know that that exists or from your experience would exist for those students so this is something that really concerns me um i've had a lot of friends who since get i think you know it's kind of the prime time to have mental health issues isn't it you're you're moving away from home you're probably in a new city you've never been in before especially at the moment the world's gone to hell like if you've just left home it's really difficult um but, you know, I've been very, very lucky because I've had support from the Disability Advisory Service. I've had support from the welfare staff at my college. I've had support from the Central University Counselling Service, like all free of charge. They've, they've been fantastic. But I've got so many friends who are at other universities in the UK who they don't even know who they could go to to try and get any support. And if they have been to go and get some support, they've got like huge, huge waiting lists to have any kind of university-based counselling or anything, if that is an, a service that's available. Um, you know, they don't have kind of a designated welfare officer. They, they, the kind of access to the dis disability support funds and everything is, you know, I think because you hear the word disabled and you think of somebody in a wheelchair, quite frankly, like that's what I thought before. Yeah. I never thought I would ever qualify for help from the disability advisory service ever. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's really worrying. Like I, I'm, I think that if I had ended up at a different university and had had the same struggles, I think my experience would have been very different because unfortunately, I don't think all universities provide that mental health 
support, which is especially worrying at the moment when we've got so many students who are either stuck at home or stuck at university or are completely isolated from everybody because they're having to quarantine or the people around them are quarantining or they're vulnerable or their friends are vulnerable. You know, it's, I think it's something that really needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I think even from um, any kind of fresher Irish university fresher students um, listening, so they're going through a period at the time where um, I was chatting to a girl today who's in third year in Trinity, um, no sorry, she's going into fourth year in Trinity, so finally her law, and she said that there she's in one of the societies so she's kind of holding these fresher events but she said all of them are all online so you have people who might be maybe the only person from their school to have maybe gotten a place or the only person in their course and they're virtually making friends like you're not getting the same support and the same kind of because even it's not even a necessary like you you need it to assist you with your if you have mental health what people deem say mental health issues or problems like everyone has mental health it can be good or it can be bad or it can be the the extreme level of of bad but everyone has mental health everyone has a mind and they need to look after it so and even if it's just the going in as a fresher and having the camaraderie of when's that assignment due or do you know what I, what's going on in this class so it's the little things that I don't think people are realizing is going to add up for freshers and for returning students as well but they might be in a better position in the sense that if they have friends they've already made the friends and they've already done that but maybe you're just a really lonely and isolated second or third year continuing student so like what have have you because you are actually on campus but you're not going to classes what if Oxford kind of done for say the likes of you or students that they're aware of so say you've linked in with the services so they're aware that you've come back they're aware that you're a student on campus that um has kind of um may have concerns over mental health at this time what have they done to kind of support you through the current period the current kind of flux period that you're in at the minute yeah so I mean over the vacation I was still having weekly meetings with like welfare and my disabilities mentor which was just so invaluable it was it was brilliant um you know obviously there's there's no ideal solution i think because the the best thing to do would be for people to be able to kind of meet up and go to the pub together and get to know each other and all this sort of thing and unfortunately that can't happen but you know i just I think that so many of the students are rallying together and creating schemes like I know there's sort of buddy schemes where you get in touch and you're kind of assigned a pen pal which is quite cool and you know um, I know that there's going to be virtual freshers events and people are just trying to make the best out of a bad situation but I know in my first year my, because my accommodation was sort of um, one of the cheapest that you could get um, I didn't have access to a kitchen and so I didn't have like a shared social space that I could you know just go into and do my work in there so that people would come in and out throughout the day and you just say hi to them um, and that was really isolating even when I had the opportunity to go out and go and see friends in other buildings and that kind of thing um, because it's you know you have to make plans you know like you 
even then you had to sort of make plans to go out and see people rather than just kind of bump into people um and so i think now like i i'm trying to think of ways that i can help the current fresh freshers in particular who don't have kitchens and these sorts of things because i think i would have found that really really tough being being in a household with a group of people but not actually having a shared social space that you can go and socialize in yeah especially right now because just we were speaking before we started recording and you guys now because you're all back at university are treated as households so yeah. you socialize and keep to your kind of pod or household i assume mm-hmm. um so if you don't have a shared space to socialize with those other six or so people on your corridor you're probably going to be pretty isolated and like i feel like less people especially international students that might have come over for oxford aren't going to travel home at the vacations because there's probably going to be if they travel home they might have to quarantine when they come back and vice versa so i think yeah i just i'm really kind of concerned um at this time of what what's going to happen to all of these students that are usually isolated not accessing services but now they're having that compounded by what covid19 is happening so yeah, absolutely. I just think kind of on a bigger picture level, I think a key problem in society is still, first of all, that mental health issues are so taboo and you're expected to kind of sweep them under the rug a lot of the time, you know. Um, you know, a lot of people, well, for example, when I was at school, like a lot of people will say, well, of course you're stressed, you know, it's coming up to exams. Um, and now it's like, I think a lot of people's mentality is, well, you're feeling rubbish, but everyone's feeling rubbish. So it's fine. Mm. Um, and I think we just need to, as, there just needs to be a huge societal shift, doesn't there? There needs to be a shift to making mental health a priority. And I hope that kind of, I've noticed in the younger generation that that is becoming a priority, but it's it's something that I really hope we can kind of keep the momentum going with. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because especially like I find there's two kind of sections to it. So I think we're so busy as a society that it's frowned upon when you take some time off or take Mm self-care. Like it's cool to be busy. It's cool to be stressed. It's cool to be like, oh, I didn't sleep much last night. Whereas that's not okay. That shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be I'm taking some time out for myself because or you should be able to like email your boss and say I need a mental health day like you should be able to have like it should be viewed at the same level and then the other thing that I struggle with is um I find the legal profession in particular um what I would find is that like the mental health the legal profession I would find a very big and growing concern because you hear the the and like with other professions as well um but in particular with law you hear the the horror stories of trainees going out and working to all hours and then going home and like i've had friends who have who have stories of going in for a nap in the bathroom and just taking a minute to go in and take a five minute snooze in the cubicle in the bathroom to catch some some kind of energy so like when you go from being in a very competitive kind of academic environment to very competitive and even when I was doing the bar like it's very like we are called to the bar in order of precedence so we are called in order of where so no one wants to finish piggy last like no one wants to be the the last person called it was different because of COVID because 
we were called in smaller numbers. So I'd say, and people were just happy to have their call to the bar in person. But like, that's immense pressure. And, but the thing is, when you get to the bar, a solicitor goes to instruct you. No one's going to say, well, what percentage did you get overall? Or how did you perform? Did you get a distinction or did you just get a pass? So I think we, we need to re, re, like shift our priorities, um, especially in the legal profession. Um, and I don't want to put anyone out there listening off the legal profession. I absolutely adore it. But I work in a very, very, like all my friends are like, the, the place you work like the people you work with like my manager like she's phenomenal but like I work in a place of I remember a particular example was I had I had never had chicken pox as a kid and um, like my mom had tried to give me chicken pox um, which sounds awful but it kind of to get it out <laughs> I, to get me past it when I was a kid um, but I drove myself so far into the ground in my first year of my master's the summer of my first year in the master's like I went over to Lesbos in Greece to work in the refugee camps immediately after finishing my exams I then came back and started working part-time somewhere in the midst of that I remember being in work one day and like the whole weekend I felt really fluey so I was like oh I'm definitely coming down with like a summer flu or something like I feel yeah. really crap and then I woke up the morning of and I had like a rash on my arms and like on my kind of chest area. And I rang my mom and my mom was like, I think you've chicken pox. And I was like, okay. I'm 20, like, I think it was 25 at the time. I was like, I'm 25 <laughs> years old. How do I have? And then I went to the, the, so I went into work thinking nothing of it being like, I should pro and I was like the smallest of movement, like the kind of the, the the illness side of chickenpox feels like a really horrible flu so the smallest of movement i was like breaking out in a sweat so i was like oh god like i'm going to have to like i i better go and ring like make a doctor's appointment and stuff so i kind of said it to work and they were like absolutely like go ahead like we'll we'll be absolutely fine here and then i went into the doctor and she was like well i can test you but i can tell you now you have and then she was like you have chicken pox and she was like you're chicken and I was like yeah I never had it as a kid so I had put my immune system I and she was like I could have picked it up in in Greece I could have picked it up on the local tram I could she was like you could have picked it up anywhere but she said your immune system was so kind of low and compromised because you were doing so much you got chicken pox at the age of 25 um with the the kind of the, the the silver lining of this story was I rang my manager initially in an absolute panic because my manager at the time was pregnant and I freaked I was just like because it's a big thing like I didn't for chicken pox and a woman going through pregnancy and initially regardless of that she was like you're so kind to call me straight away she was just like but you don't come back to us and work until you feel 100% better and I was like where do I get this manager from like <laughs> where can you share like and I tell my friends this and they're like I ring in and my manager be like you don't have a job so like I think that whole like a whole and I'm really hoping um the one thing to come out of COVID in terms of the workforce is that people start to slow down and remote work more meaning they can take those so when you're in a law firm you're remote working you can take your calls, but maybe walk out the back garden with your phone. You can get some air. You can do some kind of things. And I really, like, I really hope people just slow down 
because I think that's one of our biggest issues is it's not cool to slow down in our society it's not cool for you to slow down and not plow through and study for x amount of hours in the library like all of your friends so yeah it's just it's it, it, it just really especially with the law profession it just really distresses me how it's so cool to be busy it's so cool to be exhausted it's so cool to be like like when someone asks you how are you you're like oh yeah no I'm just really busy and tired and they're like oh my god me too like yeah it's just really sorry I'm gonna stop ranting people are probably have switched off the podcast at this point but um yeah I know it really it really frustrates me now I think as well I hate how so obviously like I'm right right at the very very beginning and you know a lot of my friends have now got training contracts and everything and like that's amazing because they enjoy that area of law and I'm so so happy for them but I'm also worried like they you know they go in into it acknowledging that there's a they're going to be worked to death and yeah they're not going to have that much time with their friends with their family like then and it's the fact that it's just expected and yeah. you know it's obviously the norm. Yeah. like it's just kind of yeah and like I do I have had people like because I'm obviously I and I friends who've gone through their training and stuff like that but like not everyone has that experience it's very kind of firm and specific yeah. partner based so but I just I I think it's like and it's the same in like a lot of other professions like it's not oh, just yeah. Yeah. law applicable like I know friends in accounting who work ridiculous hours friends in banking obviously junior doctors work insane hours junior nurses everything like that so but I just it like when did we get to the point that we can literally work people to the ground until they're probably near their deathbed in terms of how burnt out they are yeah no, it's just it's just crazy because it's and I, I mean, it must be it's so easy to do as well because if you love you know if you love kind of the work that a particular firm does you find the area of law super interesting of course you're going to go for it like the pay is amazing the work that you're doing is super interesting but the fact that you kind of even go into that knowing that it's it's kind of really going to take a toll on your mental health like how is that acceptable how is it acceptable for for firms to build these reputations to yeah. the point where people are completely fine with that you know I just yeah and like do you like I know we had a, a conversation previously and you think you're going to kind of continue on with academics after you finish your undergraduate and you're not really sure kind of your next steps after that and um, professionally but do you think when you were making that decision that you kind of consciously considered the journey you've gone through with your own mental health and how you may possibly not want to jeopard like to, to undo all of the work that you've done yeah I think for me so I, I, I mean primarily it, it's based on kind of from an academic point of view what I really really enjoy but it's like we were saying before like both of us also really enjoyed things like contracts and it you know it just so happens that public law is just kind of something that we really got into mm. um, but yeah like, no for example like things like contract really enjoyed it I think for me I'm like I'm not afraid of 
hard work obviously um, because that's something that I've done for years and years and years um, I think I think for me it was kind of the idea of if I not only have myself telling me that I have to work insane hours and I have to achieve so much if it's not only me that's telling myself that if I have lots of other people telling me that and lots of other people around me who are also reinforcing that by themselves doing doing those crazy hours I was just like that's that's not how I will work best um so yeah I think um I think even if that was kind of the area of law that I was really really interested in mm. I don't know if I would go down that route or at least I would do a lot of firm research and and that kind of thing to make sure that I was going somewhere that had the same priorities that I did because no one can do their best work when they're completely burnt out you know yeah and I think this is the the thing that people kind of need to and companies need to realize so some people work really well from like 7 a.m in the morning like I'm a morning person yeah um, some other people my some of my friends are absolute night owls now I probably when I was younger I was probably like I could force myself to stay awake to get an assignment done to study to do what I had to do but the older I've gotten I'm my brain I turn to mush at a certain point and I'm like I can't I just like I'm not being productive but surely like catering to the like your employees kind of when they're productive and getting them to work at their most kind of productive points is better for the company because you're going to get more output from your employees. So I think they just need to really kind of reshape how they like working people to the grind isn't going to what what's going to make the the next best person um, or the next best lawyer. Like it might for some, um, but at the same time, I think it's it's a lot more than just grinding away at it like it is grit and it is grind and it is hard work but you also have to have passion and you also have to have enjoy or like respect the firm and like appreciate the ethos of the firm so it's not just going in anywhere and grinding until you're literally there's nothing left of you there's I think people need to kind of consider all the other kind of elements when they're applying to places um but if we just kind of bring it back to your mental health journey so you have now been um you've been officially kind of diagnosed with OCD uh, yeah so um OCD is a bit of a weird one because the diagnosis that I ended up getting was kind of like anxiety and then OCD is a symptom of that so it's something that I got very confused about as well um so I think that that is important to kind of to know that that there are so many different you know you might say somebody has depression or anxiety but that comes along with so many different symptoms that that are kind of connected to it and um, but yeah so I uh, I think around March time of this year um, I was sort of referred to the disability advisory service which has meant that I've been able to get more kind of formalized help in place so things like mentoring so I sort of have conversations once a week with somebody who just will chat to me about how my work's going and if I need anything adjusting and, and these kind of things and looking at different ways to cope um, and then also things like exam adjustments 
um, which has made a really big difference. Um, have been able to have rest breaks during exams, for example, if I get like weighty flustered um, and uh, and things like that. That's been that's been really useful having those sort of more official things in place. Yeah, definitely. And do you find I find um, OCD quite a publicly? I think it's it's not really understood that well. So like when you say, if you were to say to someone who isn't kind of familiar with mental health, be like, oh, like I'm like the, the phrase I think of is when people are really particular about things. They're like, oh, I'm so OCD about cleaning. And you're like, it, that can be one of the, the kind of the, the habits or the tendencies of a particular person with OCD. But not all OCD people are like really clean. Like some, it, like some hoard, some have specific kind of routines that they have to do some like yours kind of is like driven by your work and your output and you're feeling that something bad may happen if you don't do kind of xyz but i think it's one of those ones that is very very kind of misunderstood caught mine kind of more i think it's just used very colloquially and it really bothers me um because i'm not officially diagnosed with it but i like that i have like an all kind of you've all this but you also have tendencies of this and it all comes together so and it can be confusing because you're you're just like okay so how do do I cope with this (laughs) and what what, how do I how are we going to manage this and so have you had that kind of has anyone kind of said to you being like oh sure everyone's just a little bit OCD like or have you had that kind of negative kind of feedback yeah so it's um it's it's weird because it I had never ever, you know, I was, I've I've always been someone who's been like quite cautious around the use of things, you know, of of mental health uh, terms to kind of describe everyday emotions and and feelings and desires and things. So, you know, I never, I'd always been quite uncomfortable with people using the term OCD because, you know, there was something dirty on the kitchen table. Like, um but I never knew that it could manifest itself in the way that I was experiencing it and it never it just never crossed my mind that that was something that could happen and that was a way that OCD presented itself um I think OCD like you just sort of you think of people being extreme cleaners or switching a light switch on and off like 15 times you know um and I think kind of going through this experience and then as well sort of being referred to the disability advisory service it's really made me challenge a lot of my like preconceptions and stereotypes because you know prior to this I've never ever would have called myself disabled and even now I still feel very very uncomfortable saying that like I almost feel like I'm being disrespectful to people who have physical disabilities um and um, and it's it is it is really tricky actually um and normally to be fair I don't mind when people say stuff like um like oh you know it's everyone's a bit OCD or or whatever I don't mind because I just kind of accept that that's something that's colloquially said but if I'm having a bad day and I'm really struggling like that can really kind of it's quite demeaning because it makes you feel as though oh well everyone else can deal with feeling like this and I can't I'm just really struggling you know it's I think it kind of makes people's experiences be quite undermined 
Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, but um, sorry, just before we yeah. kind of wrap up, um, if you were to kind of go back to say 12, 13 year old you or 17, 18, where you were around the time of first year? Uh, like nearly 19. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're a bit, oh, I was, I was 19 my first year of university. So you were, or your 19 year old self, what kind of advice would you give yourself? I think definitely to talk to other people about how I'm feeling and about how they're feeling. Cause it's crazy. Like the, the moment that I actually started opening up to people, I realized that so many people were feeling the same way but it also made me realize that actually what I feel it was feeling wasn't quite normal like you know I thought everyone had completely got it together and they hadn't because no one does when they first go to university um and so you know it as soon as I started talking to people that was really good because it made me realize that actually I wasn't the odd one out but it also did help me to kind of identify that in some ways I was the odd one out because I was feeling you know it was impacting me so much um, that it made me think okay well you know other people are struggling and so that's normal but actually this is now crossed a crossed a point now where I, that I need to kind of do something else um, and so I think talking to other people and just not being afraid to ask for help I think you know I just and I still sometimes do like just feel like such a burden even when I go and see the welfare officer whose job it literally is to speak to students who are feeling that way I always feel like such a burden and like I'm taking up the time um and so I think just speaking to other people not being afraid to ask for help and yeah just kind of being brave and putting yourself out there and actually trying to do those things rather than just thinking you'll deal with it on your own because that inevitably just means it will get worse yeah no definitely and I think I think one thing that I've learned um in all my years I sound so old is don't get disheartened by when you talk to certain people their reaction um because I think it's not and I mean that in like not just a friend and family sense um and your support network I mean that in a professional sense as well like we've both had their the same in two different countries and two different health systems the same experience with health professionals that someone was very kind of like well you don't really fit in um but maybe we'll give you some medication and then you can kind of go off and just like you're you're basically I don't mean to be this very politically incorrect but you're not bad enough for us basically um but so I think and then you've had the other and I've also had the other experience we have someone who is really well set up and well able and like wants to kind of explore this with you and you feel a lot more supported so I think don't be disheartened like you weren't disheartened when well, you were for a, a number of years but then when you started to get kind of somewhere um, you opened up again so I think if you have one bad experience don't let that kind of say okay I'm not going to speak to anyone else again because not everyone is because we don't talk about it a lot in society not everyone is equipped to deal with hearing or actively listening to kind of what what's going on um and yeah I think I think that would be kind of just pulling from yours what, what I would say to people as well but um before we finish um if you want to shout out your wonderful socials of where people can find you and kind of follow along for your final year in Oxford and your next kind of steps where people can find you 
Um, yeah, so everything is just Elder Law student pretty much, so mostly Instagram, that's where you'll see most things, and that's Elder Law student. I do a lot of like Q&As and I'm always happy to answer people's questions, um, so if you want to contact me about anything, whether that's university applications, mental health, whatever, um, and then also YouTube is where I have my videos. Um, you know, some of them are kind of a bit more informal and personal, um, like my mental health video, and sometimes I'll kind of do some videos about student life, but then I also do a lot of videos about applying to UK universities and personal statements and all that fun stuff. Um, so yeah, um, I hope to see you over there. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, it's a really kind of important topic I think people need to talk about a lot more and more in informal settings so it doesn't have to be an official conversation with like a doctor or anything or a counsellor or some some kind of authority figure um so yeah thanks so much like it's so interesting to hear the kind of the parallels in in our kind of experiences of everything even though it's two different systems so it feels like a lot of people experience the same in different countries in completely different systems so yeah thank you so much no, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another Legal Diaries podcast. Be sure to follow along on all the social media channels at legaldiaries.ie on Instagram, www.legaldiaries.ie and on Twitter, it's legal at legaldiaries underscore ie. Thank you.